Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. two-part this week and next week uh, as we uh, bring our session uh, to a close. So I just want to, you know, really say thank you as well. Um, I have enjoyed this study from the perspective of preparation. Uh, It's been a challenge uh, in a lot of good ways, and uh, and it's been something that has caused me to continue to dive deeper into the text, but also evaluate, um, going back to week one, to evaluate my own discipleship. I mentioned that Revelation oftentimes is a window through which we can look and see the realities of our world, but it's also a mirror that reflects back on us and challenges us. Um, I was mentioning to a few of you here before we got started today that as we talked about the fall of Babylon and, and the security, the false security that we place in uh, this world or in finances or in idols, man, there's times where even just in mid-age, I have to go, where is my security? Why do I worry about these things? Why do I want these things? And why, when I get these things, do I want more of these things? And Revelation uh, is one of those mirrors, like what James talks about, that we need to look at it ourselves in the mirror and not walk away and forget what we look like. Like, we should look in the mirror and go, do I look more like Jesus? So, it, you know, it's important for us to ask that question as we have come. Yes, we want to understand some of the complexities of Revelation, but more importantly, at the end of the day, we want to be more faithful to Jesus. We want to look more like him. Tonight, as we get started, we want to start talking about a concept that I think is going to be important for us to understand when it comes to the background of Revelation chapters 19 and 20, and that is the concept of a Roman triumph. Um, That phrase is uh, perhaps odd and perhaps foreign to some of us. It is foreign. We don't have Roman triumphs in the United States of America, but I want to start by talking about Super Bowl 32. And I know for some of you, that's as foreign as a Roman triumph. Um, At the same time, Super Bowl 32 took place January 25th, 1998, if that dates it at all. I was a senior in high school in Colorado. Uh, Super Bowl 32, I know that for some of you, and most of you, this is true. This would be true for me as well. Super Bowl 32 was the Denver Broncos. Anyone else know who they're playing? The Green Bay Packers. Some of you do. Okay, the Green Bay Packers. Some of you are Green Bay Packers fans, apparently, in the room. Um, So this is a dark day for some people in the room. Uh, Denver Broncos versus the Green Bay Packers. John Elway is the quarterback. John Elway needs to win a Super Bowl. He wins. And as per our tradition, the conquering city announced just a few days following this victorious battle, the victorious city announced a parade. There would be a parade, and that parade would take place on January 27th, 1998. On that date, my brother and I skipped school. I confess, uh, we did. We skipped school. Um, I don't know that my mom, yeah, my mom knows this. Okay, we skipped school. I was thinking she might listen into this. And on that day, around 650,000 people went to downtown Denver for this parade. Uh, At this parade, um, with this crowd of almost three-quarters of a million people, gathered around, the, the parade route took place along a planned route leading up to the Capitol building, the, the county as well as the city Capitol building, upon which the, the conquering quarterback got up on stage and began to hoist the trophy. Um, when it comes to the Super Bowl, and even a Super Bowl parade, or at least a parade, we're very familiar with what that image would look like, even if we're not there. We know what parades are. I announce it to my kids and they go, oh, candy, right? They know what happens in a parade. If it's a Christmas parade, who's at the end? Santa Claus. Who's at the beginning? 
police officer, mayor, someone like that at the beginning. We have some traditions around parades. This was true of the Roman triumph. When the Senate was in power, when Rome was a republic, there were hundreds and hundreds of triumphs for people beyond just conquering generals. And we actually have lists of them. In ancient literature, we have 250 or so mentioning, uh, mentionings of these parades that would take place for victorious battles and the leaders or the rulers who would be uh, in charge over the, the winning of that battle. So again, the, the John Elway figure. And when it comes to this parade, one of the things you need to know is that as Rome transitioned from a republic, a Senate-led political entity, toward an empire led by an emperor or a Caesar, there were fewer of these Roman triumphs, but they got bigger. And they were only thrown for the emperor or the general and their family. This image was so ubiquitous, it was, it was so common in the ancient world that after one of these triumphs would take place, they would stamp coins and hand out, hand out commemorative coins. Uh, you would go and you would find architecture built and you would find uh, plaques, you would find billboards and art commemorating these parades. And so I've, I've mentioned some of the components of this parade. So would you attend a parade with me today in Roman Triumph? Of course, it was a victory parade, celebrating a war that had been won. I, I maybe in a cheesy fashion talked about a quarterback defeating another quarterback. The only thing that would have made it better is if Brett Favre had to go in front of John Elway as the defeated quarterback in that parade. But here's this victory parade. The crowd would come out. And boy, I remember the crowd in Denver that day. High school kid. I'd never been in a crowd that big. I stood up on one of the posts that stand on the side of the street, just small six-inch, eight-inch post, stood up on top. Of course, we didn't have cell phones back then. Just looked around at the sea of humanity, out here to celebrate this victory that had taken place. Can you, can you hear the crowd? There would be incense that would burn. There would be a smell that would take place. There would be flowers that would be thrown. There, were, there was imagery. There would be songs that would be sung. And as this procession would, would continue, the opening part of the parade at times would include citizens of Rome who had been freed now, there was also some symbolism here. They would uh, be required, the men in the parade would be required to shave their head and wear a special hat. And the, the symbolism was that, that they had been redeemed by the general, that they had been purchased by the general because of his victory. And then you would have scenes of war that would come by on sticks, on placards, sometimes full scenes painted on billboards would come scenes of the war, paintings of the battle scenes, paintings of the, that listed the names of the towns, the names of the cities that had been conquered, the names of the generals and peoples that had been subjugated, the, the list of the, the different statistics of things that were conquered. How many chariots did you conquer? How many chariots did you take? How many chariots did you use? How many spoils of war? So then after those billboards reenacting would come spoils of war. Oftentimes, um, these would be things like armor, strange furniture, Unusual animals. Could you picture this? Elephants. Plants from foreign lands. Then after that at times, and, and these sometimes happened in different orders, you would have captives from the army or from the, ancient, the, from the foreign land. And so you would have captives who would be led in shackles, and they would be at times be mocked. We have historical evidence that at times they would actually be forced to reenact some of the battle scenes in person during the parade. So you'd have these reenactments of battle scenes. I mean, picture the Thanksgiving Macy's Day Parade where we have reenactments of some of the plays that take place on Broadway. Now it's just a reenactment that pauses and stops, but it's a reenactment of a war, a battle scene. And people are dying. I mean, would Rome do that? 
Oh, sure they would. I mean, you're familiar with what takes place in the Colosseum for the sake of entertainment as well as for the sake of propaganda. That's maybe a word you're going to want to write next to this, is that during this time in Roman history, as true as in the Republic, the, the triumph, the Roman triumph was a tool of propaganda. It was a symbol of Rome's dominance over other people. And so after these captives would oftentimes come the defeated or the, the humiliated general or the ruler, uh, the chief of this foreign people, and they would be paraded in, and they would be, we have imagery of this, they would be paraded in in shackles, in chains. And they would be led to the temple, specifically if it was in Rome, they would be led down this two and a half, three mile journey in fact, interestingly enough about that two and a half, three miles, oftentimes historians say the parade got longer than the, the journey. And it took sometimes more than one day, two, three days. We're talking about like the Carthage, is it Maple Leaf parade? I mean, we're talking like that on steroids, right? And so they would be paraded in, but here at the very end would be this defeated, not just the captives of the army, but the defeated ruler, the general. And they'd be led up to the temple of Jupiter. And they would be one of two things executed, or set free as an act of grace, most often executed. And in many ways, this symbolism was that the Roman general, the Roman emperor was communicating, the battle is not over until I come back to home, to Rome, and finish this battle with you. I share in the conquering of this battle with the people. We share in this victory. You see what the imagery is doing? We share in this victory together. So we have these reenactments of the battle that take place all the way down the parade rail. And then the general comes defeated and in shackles and he is executed as well at the temple of one of our gods. Then would come the conquering general and the royal family. Now the royal family would come oftentimes on white horseback surrounding the chariot that would be led, a chariot led by four horses. Uh, this is meant to, the general that was riding a chariot with four horses was meant to depict a god, oftentimes the, the god Jupiter himself. And so this, this victory parade in many times, in many ways, was a message that was communicating this clear message. Rome is sovereign. And specifically in this time frame, and the emperor is king of kings and lord of lords. Perhaps even the emperor is God, or a god, more specifically to their context. In Ephesus, the altar, if our archaeological findings are correct, the altar to the emperor, Domitian, where you would make sacrifices, if you were going to sacrifice and show your loyalty to Rome and to the empire, the altar there, if you go and you can look this up, the altar there depicted on its, uh, on its front and on its side panels is that of a Roman triumph. And in the, the picture of this imagery that's taking place is a captive, the general, the chief, who is on his knees, hands shackled, and the conquering general uh, ready to execute him. This imagery was pervasive on coins and in architecture. In fact, look up at some point the Arch of Titus. The Arch of Titus is the archway that celebrates the defeat of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So what do you find? The captives and furniture being paraded in. What kind of furniture? Like 
a lampstand, a menorah, being paraded in. The archway of Titus is celebrating the defeat of a city, and that city is the city of Jerusalem. This is imagery that I think is important for us as we move into our text today, because as we look at it, what we find is we find echoes of this. And it's not just in Revelation chapters 19 and 20, by the way. Uh, there's other New Testament authors that pick up on this. Paul, for instance, here's a reference that you don't have on your, your, on your handout. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. Paul talks about a triumph, and yet in this picture, he talks about Jesus spreading incense but we follow him as captives. In other words, Jesus has captured us. Now, the nice thing about Jesus is he sets us free, doesn't he? Is that we become, we become servants of his, but he's a, he's a king that's a good king. Paul picks up with that imagery. We also find Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Colossians 2, verse 15. I, I want to read this to you because Paul's talking about the, the, the cross. And Paul says this in Colossians 2.15, that Jesus took our record of sins and he nailed it to the cross, canceling our debt. But then listen to what he says. Jesus, in doing this, disarmed the rulers and the authorities. Do you hear the battle language there? He took away their weapons. And he put them to open shame. He mocked them. And he did this by triumphing over them. You hear the language. Jesus at the cross is victorious and disarming of his enemies. I believe that this is what John is doing uh, when we come to these visions, is that a number, of, a number of points of comparison to that Roman triumph are seen in this text today. And again, when we come together next week, um, Shane Wood um, would be someone I would consider an expert of Revelation chapters 19 and 20. I'd say all of Revelation, but he has focused a number of his uh, periods of study, including our time together in seminary, on this particular section. It's part of the reason I wanted to bring him back in and say, hey, walk through some of this with us. And he especially would be someone that, that I want to next week be able to, to allow you to ask some questions about um, when it comes to this text. But notice what happens in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw, I want you to circle that little phrase. Because one of the things that, uh, that I believe about Revelation when it comes to understanding Revelation is that this little phrase is not a chronological marker as much as it is a, a marker that says, and I had a vision from another perspective. Uh, some people call this the book of Revelations. It, it's the book of Revelation. But there are, are visions from multiple perspective. Then I saw heaven open. So what's the perspective? This is a vision of heaven. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Now, in the triumphal procession, a white horse is a victory horse, a horse that celebrates victory. The question becomes this. Is this the rider at the end of the parade who's the conquering general, or is this a rider who is a part of the royal family? If that's part of the picture of what's taking place at all. There, there seems to be one or the other. And that is a likely option for us. So, so notice at least there's this idea of someone who is riding victoriously. And we can see that in some of the other imagery. The one sitting on this horse is called faithful and true. You might want to list some of the names that are given of this rider. He is the one who is faithful and true. Notice the contrast between the others that we've been introduced to who deceive in this particular narrative. So his name, he is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. 
When it comes to this writer, he is pictured as the victorious Messiah. And the word Messiah or the word Christ, the Hebrew word Christ, Christos, uh, would be one of the, the ways we'd understand it. That, that idea was someone who was a king, someone who was promised, someone who was anointed. And in this, we have this picture of Jesus as both king, the Messiah, but also as the judge. And in the, the Jewish world or in the Jewish concept of a king, those two things were actually cohesive together. We separate those out. In fact, I got a summons for jury duty today. I thought, wow, this is good timing. We're getting to Revelation chapter 20 and books are going to be opened and we're going to be in front of the judge. Uh, we're used to the idea of our judicial system being separate from our executive branch. But no, in the Jewish world, David would set as judge and those who were rulers would set as judge in many cases. This is one of the pictures of Jesus. Notice this is in righteousness he judges. Justice has been something that we long for as a people. This is true since sin was introduced in our world. And Jesus comes and he judges. How long, O oh Lord, until you bring judgment, justice, for those who have persecuted and killed us? He judges and he makes war. Now the images go back all the way to Revelation chapters 1 all the way through 5. He is, his eyes, he sees, his eyes are like flame of, flames of fire. And on his head are many crowns. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, in the Roman triumph, oftentimes a servant would be charged with following behind the victorious general or king and holding multiple crowns over his head, crowns of the peoples that he had conquered. There's some imagery for you. On his head are many crowns or many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but he himself. We've already said this about names that no one knows. Uh, if you knew the name of a God, you had power over them because you could manipulate them through your prayers. No, you don't do that with Jesus. You don't have power over him. He is clothed. Notice his robe looks like what we've already seen. He is, he is clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood. He has already been at battle. He's already been at war. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This reminds you of Revelation, or excuse me, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. How did, how did God create, by the way, in the beginning? The Word, by words. God spoke, and it came into being. That's exactly what John's doing in his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. He was with God in the beginning. And the world was made through him. The world didn't know him. The world didn't accept him. He came to that which was his very own. He tabernacled amongst us. This is Jesus. Verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him also on white horses. They are part of this picture of the royal family. Notice again, clothing matters. So they are clothed in white. Why? Because Jesus' clothing is dipped in blood. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony because they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And from his mouth, that is the writer, comes a sharp sword. So he has eyes of fire, and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. Again, when it comes to understanding Revelation, whether it's literal or figurative, I would say yes, both. There is a figurative nature to it, but behind it is a literal understanding. Jesus judges and goes to war by speaking. He speaks, and judgment happens. He speaks, and armies are conquered. He speaks, and creation takes place. 
And so judgment of the nations takes place in this text, from, from which this, uh, the nations are judged. And he will rule them, this is from the book of Psalms, with a rod of iron. We saw that in Revelation chapter 12, the baby that was born. This, again, is just a picture of the Messiah that was promised. Then we have a picture from Revelation 14. He will tread the winepress. Remember the winepress in Revelation 14 after the beasts were introduced? He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has another name. Some people go, this is Jesus having a tattoo on his thigh. I don't know. It could just be written outside of his, on his garments on his thigh. But whatever. If you want to make a case for a tattoo out of Revelation, go ahead. Uh, he had on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. The imagery goes back to the many crowns. He is the conquering king over all other nations. And so we have this, this picture of Jesus that comes, and notice what we have in verse 17 as we move on in chapter 19. Then I saw, that phrase again, another vision from a different perspective. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and a loud voice calling to the birds that fly overhead. Birds in the Old Testament. We've seen it already. Symbol of judgment. Birds were a threat to Israel. If they abandoned God, birds would come and feed on their land and on them. But this was also a judgment mentioned to those who were foreign nations who came against his people. Birds are a symbol of a conquered people. Why? Because you can imagine a battle scene. And what would happen the day after a battle took place and there was carnage out in the field? The birds of prey would come. I mean, this, this isn't very surprising to us. Probably the, the best example of this we have when it comes to imagery is roadkill, right? Like when it comes to roadkill on a country road, what do you have? Man, all those Colorado, we had those big black crows that would come, nasty things, and they'd eat whatever it was on the road. Birds, you'd see them circling. Oh, something must have died there. Old Western movies, my father-in-law watches those. Yeah, that's not a good sign. And so that's the symbol here. Notice that there's a feast. Come gather for the great supper of God. This is not a good supper. This is in contrast to the wedding banquet of the Lamb. So you have, what do you have? A choice. In Revelation, really kind of the last part of Revelation, this clear choice, who will you worship? So that this supper takes place, they eat the flesh of, notice, kings, captains, mighty men, horses, riders, all men, free, slaves, small, great. And then I saw the beast. Oh, we're back to the beast now. Yes. Now we're going to come again to the judgment of the beast. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. This beast, by the way, is the one that comes out of the sea the beast that looks like a false throne or a false kingdom. We would say an evil kingdom, one that subject or is opposed to God's people. Notice this beast comes with the kings of the earth and their armies, and they're gathered to make war against the one who's sitting on the horse and against his army. Have we seen armies gathered for war already in Revelation? Yes, we have. And one of the things that I've encouraged you when it comes to Revelation is my understanding of Revelation is that it has what we have called recapitulation or a cycle where we have the same timeline that happens from different perspectives and John's visions keep going through that timeline and bringing us to the same spots. And there's moments where we go, I've seen this before. And, and yet this looks again like that timeline. We saw Armageddon mentioned. The, the place, the valley of, of Megiddo, and yet it's a mountain, and there's a gathered army that's there. Here we have this gathered. And every time we see armies gathered, what happens to them? Is there ever a battle in Revelation? No. They're just conquered. Whether that's the sword coming out of the mouth, whether that's fire coming down from heaven, 
whether that's God speaking and there's judgment that takes place. So notice what happens here. And the beast was captured, and with it, the false prophet. That is the second beast. Why false prophet? The second beast spoke what is false to cause false worship. So he spoke, he looked like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. This, this is false teaching. And again, if, if my understanding is right, and again, I may be, I may be correct, and that's okay. My understanding is right. This is a spirit of how our enemy works, and we find it happening over and over and over again in different times and different places. John's audience would have seen this as politi the political machine of Rome that pushed God's people, persecuted God's people, claimed to be sovereign, claimed to wear the crowns, be king of kings, lord of lords, desired to be worshipped, forced people to worship, and then the second beast, John's audience would have seen as some of the religious machines of Rome whether that be the imperial cult. In addition to that, some of the local deities and local trade guilds that would have taken place as well, speaking to people what is false and causing them to worship what is false as well. So these two are judged by the rider on the white horse. Notice they're captured. And in the presence of those, uh, this, this false prophet, who in the presence had done signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with sulfur. We'll come back to that again in, in chapter 20. The rest who were slain by the sword, the rest, excuse me, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds gorged with their flesh. Here's my question. As we turn the page... Revelation 20, which is where we'll need to slow down a little bit. Are all of the nations already conquered because of this judgment of the rider on the white horse has already come and conquered those who have followed the beast and the other beast? And yet when we come to Revelation 20, what we find is that, no, there's still nations again. So when we come to this phrase, then I saw, one of the things I want you to recognize is that oftentimes in these visions, we have a rewind, what appears to be a rewind and a time frame that overlaps from a different perspective. I think that's what's happening in Revelation 19 and 20, is we're going to have a yet another battle. We're going to have yet another gathering. We're going to have yet another judgment. And this time, the perspective change is not just that the two beasts are going to be conquered, but the final two enemies are going to be conquered. Who are the final two enemies? We know one, the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan. But the other enemy, kind of hidden in the background, it's death. Death is our final enemy that's going to be conquered here. And so Revelation 20 is a chapter, again, that I would say, from my understanding of Revelation, is best understood as being a recapitulation, a rewind that comes, again, from a different, uh, from a different perspective, but replays the same timeline where we could lay them over top of one another. So when we, we come to this, notice the, the phrase that starts in verse 1. Then I saw, and this time an angel again coming down from heaven, and this time he's holding in his hand a key. I want to pause here because we've seen the word key before. This is important in Revelation to follow imagery. Where have we seen a key? Do you remember where we've seen a key so far? Uh, let me mention a couple of them for you. Chapter 1, verse 18. A number of our images of Jesus riding the horse are from chapter 1. Eyes of fire, sword coming out of his mouth. Chapter 1, 18, John says this about Jesus, the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys. So there's a key to death and Hades. 
So because of Jesus' death on the cross, he has a key. Okay, so there, there's, a, there's an image of a key that's there. Chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus has the key of David. David as in the king. He is the Messiah. He's the promised one. And in chapter 9, verse 1, there is a key that is a key to the abyss. This key symbolizes, uh, and in many ways is just a symbol of, the fact that God is in control, and he gives authority to his son, the Messiah. Now, I would argue that this symbol here is symbolic as well of the fact that Jesus is in control. Notice that this angel is given a key from, um, or given a key to, again, this bottomless pit and a great chain. This great chain, um, when it comes to the, doing a word study on this, uh, can mean a couple different things, but more than, more than anything, it's not just a chain as we would picture a chain. More specifically, more narrowly, it's the kind of chain that you would shackle someone with, and you would shackle their wrists, and maybe even the wrists, or the wrists and their feet. So now you have a vision here. This is Paul in prison. This is Paul and Silas in prison, and they're shackled. Um, this is the imagery of what we find of those who are led in the, Ro the Roman triumph. They are led and they are shackled. They are chained. And this key and this chain are part of the imagery that leads into verse 2. And he sees the dragon, that is the ancient serpent, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This is going to bring us to where the story concludes. Don't miss the beauty of Revelation. So we have this narrative arc. Some of you love literature. I told you I'm reading a series right now, and I love watching narrative arcs that happen. Like, that was like four books ago. There's this arc, this narrative arc that comes back. That's this as well. Regardless of review of what happens in chapter 20, God's tying up some, some bows here when it comes to his, his creation. This ancient serpent who is called the devil, our adversary, and Satan, our accuser. And Satan is bound and he bound him for a thousand years. And we'll come back and talk about this. And he threw him in a pit, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him. He imprisoned him. Circle this phrase, so that. This binding has a purpose. And John's fairly clear in this vision of what the purpose of this binding is. We're going to ask the question, like, how is Satan bound, and when is Satan bound? We're going to ask that in a moment. But notice the purpose of it is this, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer at least until the thousand years were ended. After that, he's going to be released for a little while. We're going to go, what? What's going on there? Then I saw, and John has kind of this funny narrative moment that happens here where he's like, okay, yeah, you probably want to know more about that, but I'm going to like pause for just a moment and leave that dramatically open for you. Then I saw thrones. And seated on them were those who had authority to judge I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image or not received the mark on their hand, or foreheads or hands. We've seen all of this before. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There we have that thousand years again. Verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. We kind of go, what's going on there? Blessed and holy. Remember, there's seven beatitudes in Revelation. Here's one of them. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. 
Well, when it comes to difficult texts in the Bible, this is one of them, uh, to be quite honest. Uh, in fact, you can actually go out and buy a book called Difficult Texts in the New Testament. You can break it down further. You can buy a book on difficult texts in Paul's letters, difficult texts in John's writings. This is in all of those, uh, obviously not Paul's writings, but it's in all of the difficult text books. This is a difficult text. And we're going to discover there's more than one way to view this. And I just want to be fair by acknowledging that to you. But we're going to come at it from a, the same uh, hermeneutic that we have come at Revelation thus far. Then I'm going to explain to you a couple of the other options that you have. And next week in the Q&A, we're going to unpack some of those as well. So when it comes to the imagery here, we want to come at it from the same, or I want to come at it. Maybe you don't, which is okay. I want to come at it from the same perspective that I've had thus far and ask a few questions. What about this binding of a thousand years? How have we understood numbers thus far in Revelation, at least when it comes to how we have unpacked them in our time together on Wednesday? And I believe how you saw and, uh, and heard Mark as well as Elijah on Sunday morning unpack them. We have said this about numbers. When we come to numbers in Revelation, we, the phrase we've used is we weigh them as symbols. They are symbolic. And I would argue the key the manacles or the, the shackles, the chain, those are symbols as well. I mean, how do you take a spiritual being like Satan, who is he a serpent, is he a dragon, and how do you shackle him? You know, these are symbols that get at something that is literally happy, happening, but they're still symbols. And, and this number, a thousand, has what we have argued has been a number that describes a long period of time, but it's also a complete number. So we've had at times 12 times 1,000, 12,000. We're going to see that in Revelation 21 and 22. And it's, I think it's a symbol describing something. So I want us to recognize that there is some symbolism that's taking place here. Let me give you a couple other things that I think are taking place. Number one, I think in Revelation, the war has already been won. Jesus has already conquered. He's already overcome. And one of the, the helpful metaphors, I don't know if this is helpful for you or not, but it's helpful for me. One of the helpful metaphors is that Roman triumph, but also comparing that to World War II. Now, here's what I'm trying to say. In a Roman triumph, the battle was decided on the battlefield. Rome, if there's a triumph, I'm assuming, Rome won. It was decided. And yet, they did what? They took captives, and especially the ruler, the chief, the general, and they shackled them and imprisoned them, sometimes for years, awaiting the final triumph that would take place. And at that official triumph, that at times would be delayed for years, that general would be brought back out of prison, paraded down the streets of Rome, reenactments of the battle would take place to remind everyone of the battle that took place, and then that general would be executed to consummate, determine, and share with people in the end of the battle because it was a Roman victory. World War II, there's a difference between D-Day and V-Day. I wasn't alive. I don't know. But I do know a number of people who compare a similarity to, at the cross, what Colossians said, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and he triumphed over them, making a mockery of them at the cross. And in Revelation, what we find is over and over again, Jesus is depicted as overcoming. How do we overcome? Well, we overcome by the word of God. What I'm going to argue is this, that this thousand years is a period of time 
that is symbolic for the kingdom of God that is consummated, inaugurated at the victory that takes place at the cross and resurrection. And that what we've done is we've rewound and Satan is bound during this time, this time that is this kingdom, and that he will be released. We're going to ask the question, what does that look like? What is that? But ultimately, he'll be judged. The war has been determined, and yet there is yet a final judgment of the enemy that is going to take place. And so again, we want to wrestle with this dynamic, but let me give you a couple other things. When it comes to this idea of bound, we go, well, well, then how is Satan bound? Because it doesn't look like he's bound, if you ask that question, because it doesn't look like Satan bound. Well, if you look at Paul's life, someone shared with me this example. It might have been Shane Wood who shared this example. When Paul's imprisoned, does he still have influence, even though he's limited? Sure he does. In fact, most of your New Testament letters are written where? From prison. I mean, that's maybe a bad example, but you have someone who is imprisoned who still has the opportunity to influence. The idea of an imprisonment, if it's, if it's um, a symbol that's representing something that's literal, is this the idea that Satan is limited? He's limited in his, what he can do. And in fact, throughout all of Revelation, guess what Satan has been? Limited. You want to know the phrase? To him was given. Was given. Was given. It's called a divine passive if you study uh, Greek literature. It, it, all it means is this, is that God is really the one that's in control, even when it looks like Satan is the one who's active. It's this limitation that takes place. And so even when it looks like Satan is given free reign, the reality is, is what we discover, is that he is not. He is limited. And that Jesus has already won the victory. And so if this, if this is symbolic of that limitation, what we discover is that what? The kingdom of God is expanding into new territories. They're taking turf. The kingdom, the empire is expanding. What do we find in the Gospels? That's exactly what we find. In fact, one of the, the texts that's oftentimes mentioned with this is that passage, Mark chapter 3, verse 22. And there Jesus is casting out demons. You, you have a context in the Gospels. Jesus is casting out demons. And they ask the question, how are you casting out demons? Is it on behalf of Satan or on Satan's power that you're casting out demons? And, and he says to them, how can Satan cast out Satan? In fact, why would he do that? How could a kingdom divided against itself, notice the kingdom language, how could a kingdom divided against itself stand? And if a house is divided against itself, it's not going to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he's not going to stand. Then verse 27, which is kind of the, the key verse for us. But no one can enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first does what? He binds up that strong man, ties up that strong man, and then, indeed, he can plunder his house. What's Jesus doing by casting demons out of people that Satan claims dominion over? He's taking over the strong man's house. I don't know if this is a direct connection, but there's at least a strong uh, link with this word that is there. And this, this imagery plays out throughout the Gospels where we find that in Jesus' ministry, Satan and his power is more and more limited. There is a, a conquering that is taking place and an expansion of the kingdom that is taking place. What does Jesus say about the kingdom? My kingdom is like a what? Small mustard seed. What does it do? It grows. It expands. And in fact, when it comes to Jesus' kingdom, Jesus says about the, the disciples, the 72, Luke chapter 10, verse 17, they come back. They've cast out demons. Look, I saw Satan fall. Even demons are subjected to your name, to your name, Jesus. So when it comes to this dynamic, when it comes to the, even the binding of Satan, my understanding of it is this. Satan is limited. It doesn't mean he doesn't have influence. 
But specifically, I had you uh, underline and circle that phrase, so that, so that you might understand what this limitation is. In this vision, the limitation specifically is so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Now, I think there's implications of that. Because in John's time, what has he witnessed take place? He has witnessed as a young man, a disciple of Jesus, a huddled, afraid group of disciples right after the crucifixion, hiding. And after the resurrection, what happened? Pentecost. What happened after Pentecost? The book of Acts. What happens in the book of Acts? The gospel starts to spread. Where? Well, the book of Acts, the goal is, is to get the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome. And what you have in the book of Acts is this gospel that goes out to all nations. It's this promise that Satan will no longer, this is my understanding of, again, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, so that the nations can hear the gospel. The word of God, Paul says, is not bound. Even though Paul himself is in shackles, that's what he says in 2 Timothy. I'm bound, using the same language, but the word of God is not bound. It's unlimited. It goes out and out and out and out and out. And so now what we have is this global expansion of the gospel because the enemy has been limited. The enemy is also limited in this. What happens to these nations in this text? They gather to encircle God's people, to put them to an end. That's after he's released from prison. We'll get there in just a moment. But he's limited so that this might not happen. What does Jesus promise to Peter about the nature of the church? The gates of Hades will what? Not prevail. They'll not conquer. They'll not overcome it. There's a limitation there. God says, Satan cannot do this. Who's in control? Jesus is on his throne. God is on the throne. In fact, what I'd argue is this. Can you imagine if Satan were not to be limited in some capacity? If this is symbol, what would happen if Satan were not to be limited in some capacity? If he were given free reign? Destruction. I mean, the image is the demons who go into the herd of pigs and they just jump off a cliff. Because that's what demonic forces do, is they destroy so some pictures of this, like when is the kingdom? When is this thousand-year reign? Again, if I'm correct and Jesus comes and the cross and the, the, the resurrection and the ascension inaugurates, and I would even add the um, Pentecost, if those inaugurate the kingdom, and this kingdom is a fulfillment of the promise to David, and it is Israel's promise, but it's Israel that has as a remnant of faithful believers to their Messiah, but it has Gentiles grafted into it. It's not a drop-dead stop date. It's not Jewish, Israel, and then, hey, Gentiles in the church. It's no faithful messianic followers of the Messiah who have followed God's promises. And Gentiles, you get to be a part of this if you're Gentile. Like, you, you get to be grafted in. But let's not minimize what God has done to his promised people. So when is the kingdom? And again, if this number is symbolic and if we've rewound and if Jesus is victorious and if D-Day happened at the cross, if the enemy has already been defeated... But now there's just the consummation of that defeat to take place later. What we find in, in Revelation is that we find imagery saying this, as well as throughout the rest of the New Testament. Let me give you a few examples. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother, and your partner, I fellowship with you in this, in the tribulation and in the kingdom. 
So again, if I'm reading John, there's two things that I go, John at least claims to in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, be participating in with them as in the seven churches living in 96 AD or so. Two things, tribulation, if not the tribulation, and the kingdom. So when is the kingdom? I would argue John sees himself and the people there living as a part of the kingdom. Revelation chapter 4 and 5, what do we have? Is Jesus on the throne? Yes. It may not be a throne like what we depict or even what the disciples depicted. So are you at this time going to restore your kingdom? Acts chapter 1. No, my kingdom, Jesus before Pilate, is not of this world. My kingdom is different than maybe how the kingdoms function of that first beast. But is Jesus on the throne? Is he reigning? Well, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, John the Baptist comes in, Jesus comes in. What's their message? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's right here. You can touch it. Reach out. It's here. Why does Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount? Because the kingdom of heaven is inaugurated. He is inaugurating the kingdom of heaven. This is how you, how you follow and are a part of that kingdom as citizens. John chapter 18, uh, verse 36. This is to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. Matthew chapter 28. You need to know this text. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. All authority. Do you know this text? What comes next? In heaven and on earth. Uh, you need to know both of those parts. When Jesus teaches us to pray, what does he say about? Your will be done in heaven and where? On earth. Why? Because Jesus' kingdom is in heaven and on earth, and I would argue it is now, like it was then, and it's still now. And so all authority, as in like all authority, I'm king, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now notice the only thing Satan has are things that are given to him. It was given to him. It was given him the ability. It was given him. Therefore, go and make disciples of what? All nations. Why was Satan bound? To be kept from deceiving all of the nations. The gospel is going out into all of the nations because God has bound Satan from some of his deception that has taken place. Now, this has been promised to God's people from the very beginning. Abraham was promised, your people will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. My kids love counting the stars when it's cold out like it was last night. We've been learning about some of the constellations. Can't count them. Your, your generations, your people will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But they're going to be a blessing to the nations. Pentecost is a fulfillment of that promise as the book of Acts goes out and the gospel is taken to the nations. In fact, it's even an undoing of Tower of Babel as they speak one language and hear one gospel message and they come together from multiple tongues and tribes and languages and they worship the one true God. So are they reigning now? If the kingdom is now, I would argue yes. There's some, some complicated language here that's rather important to us. In fact, one of the weaknesses of, of the view that I hold is this word resurrection. Because often, if not always in the New Testament, the word resurrection refers to a bodily as well as a spiritual resurrection. In my understanding of this text, that word first there is a qualifier. And the first resurrection is John alluding to a physical death. But as believers, guess what happens is we actually don't die when we die. We're resurrected. But he uses that word first to talk about, like he uses, uh, the New Testament uses first other places. There's a first Adam and a second Adam, which is Jesus. There's a first creation and a second creation. 
if I'm right in my understanding, is John here is saying, even when you die as believers, whether you're martyred or whether you're just the kind of person who hasn't been marked by the beast, you go to be with Jesus. But it's just a first resurrection. It's not the full thing. There's a second one, which will be a full bodily resurrection. That, again, is my understanding of it. But the first death is what happens to those who have no hope in a first resurrection. You die and you're, just, you're dead. And what comes next is a second death, which is eternal. But those who participate in the first resurrection get what? They, they don't get impacted by the second death. They have this promise that's coming in Revelation chapter 21. And so again, my understanding of it is this, is that the, the thousand year reign is symbolic, but it's inaugurated at the cross, at the Christ, we would say the Jesus event, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, as well as Pentecost. And it is this age of his people that are reigning now, his kingdom is now on heaven and on earth, and that he will come back. And that's the end of, of that, that time frame, that thousand years that's symbolic of a long time. Now, Peter says this, I don't know that it's helpful for us with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day, like who knows, but he's patient. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter there's using this thousand years, but I would go, he's using that thousand years in a different way. It doesn't really help us with that thousand year number to go, look, Peter used it as symbol, but understand we have this dynamic to where we have to ask the question, what do we do with this? So let me give you these four views. I think even on your, your page, I put three view, or four views, and then I broke it down to three views. But let me give you uh, what is in kind of basic form three views. I want to break one of them off into a fourth view. The first view of this thousand years is what we have been teaching uh, on Sunday morning, as well as from this stage, the understanding that we have been, the perspective we've been coming from. And that is what is called amillennialism. Millennial is just that word for thousand. What's the A? In Greek, the letter A or alpha is like our prefix un or non. It kind of just cancels out what's ever, ever after it. So it kind of means this, there is no millennium. It, it, when it comes to like the literal understanding of it, it doesn't mean that we don't believe that there is a millennium. It's just that we see it as symbolic. Does that make sense? So amillennialism is just this, that the number 1,000 is symbolic for a time frame that takes place, an era or an epic that takes place. And we see numbers as symbolic. A second view in your handout you see the word millennialism again, and now you have the prefix pre. This is a view that believes that Jesus will return before a kingdom takes place, and that this kingdom at times will be an earthly kingdom with a, an earthly throne that takes place. Now, there's different perspectives of this. This is, I think, in your, does it say four views and then there's three underneath of it? Okay, so let me break out premillennialism into two, and there's going to be two hard words. Okay? But if you want to do some, do some research on this, uh, it might be helpful. One of them is what is often called historic premillennialism. This dates back. Okay? So this dates back. You can go back to early church history, and there are believers who understand Revelation this way. It is very, um, I would argue, it is a, a very um, reasonable way to interpret and understand Revelation. Um, there are weaknesses uh, to amillennialism that Premillennialism has its strengths, and vice versa. They tend to uh, read it, uh, Revelation more as a chronological narrative, which again, there's some strengths to that, rather than what we've been doing with the recapitulation, the cycles that move back and forth. 
So when Shane comes next week, we're going to ask some questions about the, the distinctions between these particular views. A second form under this prefix pre is a large word called dispensational. And when it comes to dispensational, they view human history in various periods or what they would call dispensations. So you have the covenant with Noah, you have the covenant with Moses, and you have the covenant with, excuse me, predating that, Abraham. And, and it moves through in covenants. And when it comes to the distinctions between these two, Israel factors in. In fact, will Israel have a reestablished temple, as in literal on earth? Now, some of the nuances of these two particular views and the distinctive between them. When it comes to this, this view of uh, the, kind of this dispensational view, it's fairly recent, as in like 1830. I know that that's not super recent. Um, but when it comes to the Darby, you've heard of the name possibly John Darby or, or some of those names, that, this is a very popular name that comes out of a movement um, that is moving along that timeline, so 1830 and beyond. Then the last view that we want to talk about again next week will be post-millennialism. Sorry, I keep saying that with like marbles in my mouth. And with that prefix post, here's what we mean. Okay, If pre is Jesus returns and then there's a thousand-year kingdom, post means this, there's a thousand-year kingdom and then Jesus returns. Now notice, there's a lot of um, parallels with amillennialism and post. So what's the difference with post? Well, post would, be, would believe this, that there is going to be a time where humanity and the earth reaches um, such a utopian, Christ-like, um, kingdom-like nature, where the gospel has been reached uh, to all the, the corners of the earth, that Jesus is going to come and he's actually going to reign here and he's going to be received as king. Now, this view was popular between 1650 and 1920s, the 1920s. Now, what happened in the 1920s? 1930s, World War I, World War II. In that time frame, this became less and less popular. By the way, some, some of the leaders in our movement, the Restoration Movement, the Christian Church Movement, some of our leaders uh, had this view. And other, other leaders in our movement, by the way, have each of the other views as well. So let's not be divisive on this. Just understand this is complicated. It's difficult. Let's be united in the things that are difficult. I just want to be fair with you and open with you, transparent, to say we've come at this from one perspective for the sake of clarity over the last several weeks. Because we'd have to have a different class from each of these different perspectives for us to understand that particular lens and understanding of Revelation. This, the reason why this was popular, the post view, I think had to do with kind of a post-Renaissance enlightenment, and I would even say humanism, philosophy that was saying the world is getting better and better. Look at all the scientific advancements. Look at all we're doing. Look at all the things that are happening, all the peace. And then what happens? The world falls apart, World War I, World War II. Nope, that can't be it. So what happens is that the other two become, again, more popular, where things are getting worse, where things are getting worse, tribulation is coming, what's happening? And, and so I, I want us to understand that there's, there's not only um, these three views, then really four views, there's also historic dynamics that cause us to read Revelation through some of these lenses. And we have to be discerning, I have to be discerning, we have to be discerning to ask, is my presuppositions, are my presuppositions framing my understanding of this text? So the reason why we've set aside the Q&A for next week is because we want to be able to come back and, and dissect some of those other views and compare and contrast. So as, as we come to the last few verses of Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 and 10, what we have is this, is Satan is released. After the thousand years are ended, again coming back from this symbolic view, Satan will be released from the prison. Now, Shane Wood argues this. Notice what's not taken off of him are the shackles. 
So he's released from prison. He's going to come out to deceive the nations, which, by the way, I thought in Revelation 19 when the rider on the white horse came that that they were already destroyed, that he already judged all of them. Well, no, this is, and again, I would argue a vision from a different perspective that recapitulates. It reviews the same material again from a different perspective. He's going to come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. Then he uses from the Old Testament this phrase, Gog and Magog, two nations that are depicted as being the nations that would oppose God's people at the very end. So they gather for battle. Their number is like the sand on the sea. This is a massive army. In fact, they contrast Abraham's promise, don't they? His people would be like the sand on the sea. They look like the sand of the sea. This is going to be a battle. And they marched over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And yet, is there a battle? Fire came down from heaven. This reminds you of some of those Old Testament stories where Israel doesn't have to fight. It reminds you of the sack, the intended sack of Jerusalem. They don't have to fight. They walk out the next day and the enemy is defeated. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes, consumes them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet already were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. What is this release? There's two options um, in, in my view of my understanding of Revelation. One of them is this, is that yes, perhaps at the end there will come a time where things will get worse and there will be a rise in a deception. When is that? Is it now? I don't know. You know, someone would go, man, things are getting really bad. Maybe. That's option number one. My options, my view is actually a little bit different. My view is that this is all a picture that is taken from what these people over and over again had forced upon them, which was the, Im- that, the imagery going back to where we started, the imagery of the Roman triumph. This imagery over and over again was depicting that Rome is triumphant, that Rome is victorious, that Rome is sovereign, that Rome is the conqueror, that Rome always wins, that Rome always defeats its enemies. And what we have here is this parading. Notice the armies, are, the armies are paraded through the landscape of God's creation. And Satan is released, but we have this what? He's not released from his shackles. And, and, and Shane and I can talk about this a little bit next week because I agree with him in this, this dynamic. That he's released only like the enemy in the Roman triumph to ultimately face his doom. And what we have as we move even from Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, is that the very next thing that's depicted is, then I saw a great white throne and the one who was seated on it. If you study God's throne, it's weird in the Old Testament because God's throne is oftentimes depicted as a chariot. I don't know if this is the imagery here. But I do find it uncanny that the imagery so directly matches what the Roman triumph was. And here you have God, who we've already had Jesus, his son, riding on a white horse. Here you have God depicted as on a chariot, and he's going to do what? He's going to be acting as judge. And in this, this scene, this scene that takes place is this throne. We've already seen throne and those who reign with him. If you do word study of this word throne, the word throne is always in heaven. And this, this scene is where, where we have this final judgment. I mentioned to you that I've been summoned to be on a jury. I've actually, it's actually the second time I've served on a jury. Uh, the first time was in a criminal case. Uh, it was a gentleman actually who came home and beat up his nine-year-old dad. Um, it was a very difficult case up, up in Illinois. Um, and, and I don't know what the next week holds uh, with being on a jury. But I, I do know it's intimidating. The jury selection process makes you feel like you're on trial. They start asking you questions. Have you ever been arrested? 
have you ever done drugs? I'm like, oh my word, I'm the preacher in town when this was happening to me. I'm like, oh, I feel guilty already, and I'm just sitting here just trying to be a juror. This is an intimidating scene. Books are opened. Notice what's in the books. What they had done. They're judged according to what they've done. Are these literal books? Is this, does God need a literal book to remember? No, he doesn't need a literal book to remember, but this is an image that's pretty powerful. Are my deeds written in a book? But the beauty of this is that ultimately we recognize that there also is a book that is opened, which is the book of life. This life, this book, has a, a role. The imagery is of a role of names. And the role of names are those who have placed their allegiance with Jesus. Another metaphor would be this. They are citizens of heaven. They have, even in their sin, repented and washed of their, been washed of their sins because of the blood of the Lamb. This is the Lamb's book of life. And so notice what happens is that even though those who are judged for what they have done go on to the second death, death and Hades are also thrown into the lake of fire. Those who are in the Lamb's book of life get the promises that we have in chapter 21. So it is this solemn image in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, as we come to the end. But death is this last enemy that is defeated. And so what I want to do is take just the last seven to ten minutes we're together and introduce to you some of the imagery in Revelation 21, 22. And then next week, that's the second topic. As we, we talk about Q&A, we want to talk a little about heaven as well. And, and also, obviously, some, some questions you have just from the, the time that we've spent together. But I want to talk about a few things. Revelation 21. First of all is the word new. In Revelation, this word new is a Greek word that doesn't mean new as in never existed before. There's different Greek words for the word new. Um, this word new is the concept of something that is renewed. Something that is made like it originally was intended. So some of you restore cars. I'm assuming there's at least one of you in the, the, the room who restores cars. Or maybe you make a house look like it was brand new. We talk about new in that way. It's like new. That's this word. So a new heaven, new earth is this earth renewed as God intended it. Sometimes our misperceptions of heaven are this, is, is actually Greek dualism, which is the idea that heaven is just the spiritual realm. And then we're actually going to stay in that, 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 that realm and that status. No, the image in Revelation, the promise here is that we're actually given a new earth and a new resurrected physical body. How do we worship? It's not just in singing. It's in living and loving and laughing and building and learning, doing. We're going to live in a new creation that is as God intended it to be. So much of our lives are spent in this world going, this isn't how it's supposed to be. That's what the Jewish idea of peace is, is a wholeness, a peace between God and me, a peace between me and you, and a peace between me and creation. It's new. But what about the word no more? Well, I've given these to you. There's seven of these. No more sea. What is sea an image of? It's a sea of chaos. Next to the throne of God, it looked like a sea of glass. The sea was mixed with fire when there was judgment taking place on earth, but now the sea is gone. There's no more chaos. Why? Well, death and Hades and the dragon and the two beasts are all thrown into the lake of fire. There's no more death. I've attended too many funerals. No more mourning. 
No more crying. No more pain. No more curse. Going back to Genesis. No more night. Now again, when it comes to imagery like the word night, you go, what, what's with the word night? It's danger. It's darkness. Why? Because God is there. Notice the dwelling imagery that's here. I will dwell with them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. The dwelling of God is with man. This dwelling is what has been, God has been working toward in his plan from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden. God walked with us. He dwelt with us. Sin separated us. So what did he do? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come pursue you. So what does he do? He goes to Abraham. He gives him this promise. And he wants to walk with him. What does he do with Moses? He walks with him. He walks with him. He's present with him. He has them build a tabernacle, a tent. What's the tent symbolic of? They put it in the middle of camp. Why? Because God's dwelling with you. They build a tabern or a temple. Why? Because God wants to dwell with us. Jesus comes, John chapter one, and he dwelt among us. What's the word? Tabernacled. He camped among us. He lived in human flesh. He dwelt with us. Jesus leaves. And what does he promise? The Holy Spirit is coming, and I'll send the Holy Spirit, and he'll dwell inside of you. In fact, it's better if the Holy Spirit, better if I leave, because it's better if the Holy Spirit comes, because he can, he can dwell in you all. God has always desired to dwell with you, his people. And what is most important about Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is who is there, not what is there. I want to say that again. What is most important about Revelation 21 and 22 is who is there, not what is there. Notice the imagery. Bride, city, temple, garden of Eden. What's all of it an echo of? God is dwelling with his people in relationship, and you will know him intimately. You will be in his presence. You are citizens. You're safe. So we have city imagery. You'll notice city imagery depicts people, lots of people. 12 gates, 12 foundations. That number 12, if we weigh the number, even Old Testament, New Testament, names of the tribes, names of the apostles. We have these people that are coming together. And the symbolism of this city is that of people. And it's a place that's safe. Notice the wall is a division of 12, 144 cubits, 12 times 12. By the way, literally, that's 72 yards. That's a thick wall. Are you safe? Yeah, you're safe. The gates, not that you need a wall, because the gates are never even shut. Why? There's no more enemy. They're already defeated. D-Day and V-Day have already taken place. There's no more night. There's no more darkness. It's light. All of this is a fulfillment of the promises that the people had when it comes to a kingdom and a city and, and a promised land that was given as a promise to Abraham through David and to his people, even the exilic people, the people who were exiled are promised many of these promises that are fulfilled now in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. This city, this place, this cube is measured and it measures, notice the number 12, it, no, it measures 12,000 stadia. How, if we're going to take it literal, how, how wide is that? How big is that? Well, it's 1,380 so miles. Now, I don't know, but that's the distance between Jerusalem and Rome. It's, it's about roughly the distance, uh, the, the breadth of the Roman Empire. This kingdom, this city that's depicted here is the size of the Roman kingdom. It's a place where everyone can fit. All of the people are there. I think the image is this of this city. Everyone's there who's faithful to God, whose names are in the citizenship book, the Lamb's Book of Life whether that's the faith of Abraham that's looking forward to the coming Messiah or those who live after the Messiah looking back on the Messiah, they're all there and they're safe. 
They're secure. There's nothing to worry about. No need for security cameras that you can check on your phone. We were robbed in our house. We've been, had things stolen from us twice in Web City. That shook us a little bit, to be honest. It's taken a little bit of time for that to wear off. There's no need to shut the gates, lock the doors. My son will say to me, Dad, did you lock the doors tonight? We live in a world where we feel very insecure. This city, this destination we have is a place that's safe. Let me give you a couple other things. I know we're running right at 750. The temple imagery. We have a couple things here that are interesting. This city is depicted as a golden cube. The temple had already been destroyed, but if you were to walk into the Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies was a golden cube. What did the Holy of Holies represent? What was it? When you went into it, you were dwelling in the presence of God. What did the high priest wear into that Holy of Holies? He wore a garment, a number of garments, but one of the garments in ephod had 12 stones on it. Notice the 12 stones in this chapter. Those 12 stones had the names of what? The 12 tribes of Israel. What was that symbolic of? He was, as a person who was a representative, bringing all of the people of Israel into the presence of God. What happens now? The temple is expanded, and we all live inside of it, as in like those 12 stones, all of those people. 12 again, all living inside. The, the, the priest is Jesus, and he brought us inside, like the high priest pictured in the Old Testament. We get to dwell in the presence of God. And in fact, what Revelation says, and there is no temple. Why? Because Jesus is there. God's there. His dwelling is with you. You don't need a temple anymore. You're there. You dwell with him. So again, the emphasis is not streets of gold. That's just pavement. It's just a rock. It's just a mineral. God's there. People are there. Store up treasure in heaven. Remember what I said? It's a riddle. People are the treasure in the kingdom of heaven. There's Eden imagery, the river of life the tree of life, 12 different kinds of fruit. Why 12? Because it's constant for all of the people that are there. That number 12 happens again and again and again. And there will no longer be any curse and they will dwell with him. They will see his face. We have the opportunity to know him more fully than we do now. See, I love what Revelation 21, 22 does. And so let me wrap it up with this final statement. Revelation is an end to what God started and promised. And even though we have failed along the way, and I have failed along the way, God has constantly pursued us, constantly chased after us, like the father in the story of the prodigal son. He's constantly chased after us, even in our rebellion, even in our rejection. He's constantly pursued us. And Revelation pulls all of these promises to Abraham, to David, to the remnant who was exiled to Babylon, to the church. He pulls all of these promises, and all of these yeses are found to be fulfilled in Revelation. And all of these biblical themes, Eden, Tim, Jerusalem, covenant, Exodus, and all of the narrative plots in the Bible, whether that's revelation or the biblical narrative, all of them point to this ultimate conclusion where at the end of this text, what does Jesus say? I'm coming soon. Blessed are you if you're ready. Behold, I'm coming soon. I need to wake up and open my eyes at times to the realities of the world and what's really going on around me but wake up with the anticipation of someone who's coming. Wake up with the anticipation that Jesus is coming. And that I look forward to that victory of celebrating with Jesus. You know what they did along that Roman triumphal procession? They sang songs of victory. There's a few songs that I'm gonna wanna sing. Some of those songs we sing here on Sunday morning in preparation for that day. 
I'm going to want to sing. I'm going to want to pray. I'm going to want to worship and give thanks. Not because of anything I've done, but because the victory was already accomplished at the cross. So again, thank you for uh, participating in this particular study over the last several weeks. Um, I do invite you back. Um, again, I know that um, there are a number of questions that you will have. I'd encourage you this week to write those down. And in fact, as an invitation, if you'd like to, if you don't want to ask them vocally in the room next week, if you want to email those to me on my handout, um, I don't know that I have it on this one. In some of the earlier handouts, I had my email address um, on there. Maybe it is on the, the handout here. Um, feel free to email those to me. Um, and then we can ask those more anonymously from the room. Hey, I had someone in the room who asked this question, and then I won't like poke at you and say, yeah, this is the person who had that particular question. Feel free to do that this week. That may also allow Mark, uh, Shane, and myself to prepare for some of those questions. Again, thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christchurch, visit us online at cco.church.